0: Head to my website SimonMundy.com or Amazon, Waterstone, Smiths, places like that to get your copy.
1: Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plushcare. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zeppound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online.
0: Hello and welcome to this week's Don't Tell Me The Score. I'm Simon Mundy, and in this episode, I am joined by Dr. Russ Harris, who is probably the world's best-known trainer of acceptance and commitment therapy, which is known as ACT for short. Russ is also a doctor, a psychotherapist, a coach, and a consultant for the World Health Organization. Now, I am a huge fan of ACT, It combines elements of mindfulness with an emphasis on the importance of living a life in alignment with your values. It is certainly my favorite psychological intervention. I still use it all the time. It's helped me sleep better, perform better in pressure situations, whether playing sports or at work. And perhaps most importantly, it has helped me understand that I'm not my thoughts or the story I have about myself in my head. There are so many layers to act, so I'm really excited to share this conversation with you. And Russ has written the two best-selling books on the subject, including The Confidence Gap, which Sir Alastair Cook used to help him become arguably the most mentally strong cricketer in English history. Alistair explained exactly how it helped him in the episode we recorded, which is in the Don't Turn With the Score back catalogue. So it may be worth listening back to that episode after this one. So here's why ACT is so valuable. The fact is, it is entirely normal to experience uncomfortable thoughts and feelings during challenging situations, it's simply part of the human experience. However, it can be all too easy to feel like there's something wrong with us when uncomfortable thoughts and feelings pop up, as they do, and our inclination is to try and swap them away, or worse, medicate them away. Now, ACT teaches us we don't need to go into battle and resist feelings of anxiety, nor their accompanying thoughts, for example. The more we can open up and accept the thoughts and feelings, the less power they have over us And paradoxically, the quicker they then pass. In this episode, we talk about how we are prone to misunderstanding what confidence and happiness is. Their meaning has changed in recent years. It used to be about doing important and meaningful things in the world, regardless of how we feel. We discuss why self-acceptance is far more valuable and important than self-esteem. We talk about why we need to shift the emphasis from goals to values. And Russ and I discuss the ACT diffusion techniques, which really are a powerful mindfulness tool and can be done at any moment of the day. So if meditation isn't for you, these brilliant techniques could be just the ticket. I love chatting to Russ. His work is outstanding. He's a great guy. His books are brilliant. And sincerely, I cannot recommend ACT enough. It was, no understatement, life-changing for me. So if you're new to it, I'm really excited for you. There really is so much of value in this conversation. I hope you enjoy it. If you do, and you could share it with someone who you feel might benefit from listening, I would be immensely grateful. So let's get to this week's episode. Here is Dr. Russ Harris. Dr. Russ Harris, I'm really, really excited to have you on. I think your work is brilliant, as you know. I love ACT, which we're going to get into, and what we're going to talk about in terms of values, in terms of confidence, in terms of redefining success, happiness, all those things are so valuable so yeah i'm just really excited to dive in with you russ but because this is a bit of a sporty podcast let's start with a bit of sport you are an australian you're in australia now you must have a favorite sport surely that's a national requirement isn't it
2: <laughs> well I, I would say i'm probably the most unsporty australian on the continent um, and you know it, it's quite ironic that uh that there are so many sports psychologists here in Australia using my work. I recently gave a, a kind of training to a, a bunch of our Olympic uh, coaches here. Um, and uh, it was fantastic that they were able to translate what I do into the, the various sports that they were coaching <laughs> because I know nothing about sport, really. Uh, you know,
0: I admire that. But um, I think. Act is perfect for sport because I think sports I always say it's a metaphor for life but in terms of thoughts and feelings and fear and all that stuff I think it's a really good arena for testing those things and if I give a little example where if I'm playing tennis so I'm a tennis fan if I'm playing tennis against a guy who I play quite a lot I'm serving let's say five all it's a deciding set it's a tense time the feelings and thoughts that I will be having will be pretty uncomfortable. They'll be, oh my gosh, I better win. I'm going to miss this serve, whatever it may be. You know, those feelings of anxiety in the stomach. But the fact is no one outside of the match cares one bit and, and even me, 10 minutes later, I wouldn't care. But so I think actually the fact that sport is designed to bring these thoughts and feelings, these uncomfortable thoughts and feelings that some of us are prone to try and dispense with it makes a, a perfect fit with the work that you do around act.
2: Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, absolutely. It's uh, actually. I mean, <laughs> if I was to pick one sport, it would definitely be tennis. It, uh, it's um, the act approach just applies to any field of human endeavor, whether uh, and you know whether that's playing sport at an elite level or whether it's just playing it at a social level um it's it's the same principles it's like how do you focus on what you need to do how do you deal with all the challenges that you face in the outside world and how do you deal with all the challenges that show up in your own internal world
0: now i know you're not a huge sports fan but there is one thing that i found slightly amusing and you've mentioned how many sports teams and organizations use your work there's a very famous ashes test series that england won back in 2011 in australia now obviously at that point australia had long for a couple of decades had the upper hand in terms of ashes test series particularly in australia and then there was this one test series where england actually won down under which is just pretty much unheard of and the guy who basically won the series almost single-handed was Alastair cook and he scored 766 runs he was at the crease for 36 hours people would go to sleep here and they'd wake up eight hours late and he'd still be out there batting and the the funny thing is that he was really struggling for confidence just a couple of years earlier around 2009 2010 and i interviewed alistair former england cricket captain and he said that the thing that really changed things for him was reading the
2: confidence
0: gap which is your <laughs> book
2: <laughs> so i love it <laughs> Well, of course, you know, I'm English originally. I kind of, i moved to Australia when I was 25 and I was the worst cricket player in my school and my teachers like ribbed me mercilessly. I wish I could go back in time and say, look what I'm going to do one day, you know. (laughs) I might be shit at cricket, but I know a bit about psychology, you know. so Oh, that's amazing.
0: So just to sum up, alistair's story just really quickly he said that he had what he uh, described as a gimp which was again using his terminology the guy on his on your shoulder eating away at your confidence knocking your confidence telling you you're rubbish the feelings that accompany that and naturally in his case and in many other cases the impulse is to try and either bat away those feelings or to ignore those feelings or to go to, to war with those thoughts and feelings. But actually, ACT and your work is all about not doing that, not trying to fix it in that way. It's a kind of counterintuitive approach to uncomfortable thoughts and feelings and really a, an approach to life and confidence in particular.
2: Yeah, absolutely. It's, you know, the, the instinct is when these kind of, when your confidence is, is down, you've got these thoughts kind of self-doubting thoughts popping up in your head or feelings of anxiety showing up in your body. The natural instinct is to try to push that stuff away, get those thoughts out of your head, suppress those feelings. You know, I have to think positive and feel good, but that just takes up so much mental energy uh, that pulls you off your game. It pulls you off anything you're trying to do. So the confidence gap is about rather than trying to get rid of those perfectly normal natural self-doubting thoughts and feelings of anxiety that we have in challenging situations. It's about just learning how to let them be there without a struggle, learning how to let them kind of come and stay and go in their own good time without getting caught up in them. Uh, And and as you say, it is completely counterintuitive, but very powerful. Because evolutionary speaking,
0: To have uncomfortable thoughts and feelings is not just normal. We are specifically wired that way and for good reason.
2: Yeah, I mean, if you're a cave person stepping out of your safe, familiar territory to go and hunt a woolly mammoth, then you're in danger and you need to be on the lookout for things that could hurt or harm you. You know, there's kind of lots of big critters out there with big teeth that would love to have a, you know, a, a puny bipedal ape for lunch. So, uh <laughs> you know, you've got this kind of fight or flight response that kicks in, uh, you know, hardwiring your body so that if you uh, encounter a threat, you can fight or run away. So that gives rise to all those feelings of kind of fear and anxiety. And then, you know, about 250,000 years ago, our Our cerebral cortex developed an extra layer that enabled this kind of sophisticated cognition. And so on top of that fight or flight response, now we've got this kind of thought process, watch out, you might get harmed, you might get eaten, look out, there's woolly mammoths about, and then Maybe you should do a bit more practice with your spears. Maybe you need to go back to your cave and, and work on your, your <laughs> overarm spear throwing a bit more, you know, and, and it's kind of that sort of uh, process that shows up in challenging situations. We get these feelings of anxiety, which is really just our body preparing to deal with a challenge and preparing us for a threat. And we get these kind of thoughts in our head popping up saying, watch out, make sure you're prepared, work hard. This is
0: dangerous. And back in the day, you mentioned uh, a woolly mammoth. There's the metaphoric saber tooth tiger as well, isn't there? So back in the day, or for the most of human history, one imagines that the threats that we faced were more obvious, more prolific than they are now. Do you agree with that?
2: Yeah, uh, I mean, yes. <laughs> I mean, we do experience threats today. But I mean, uh, yeah, life was a, a whole lot more dangerous back then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For
0: sure. So for the majority of human history, it's fair to say, life has been a lot more dangerous. So we now live in, even during this pandemic, we now live in a relatively sanitized world of, of comfort. And we've got a roof over our heads. And, you know, the National Health Service in this country... And obviously, technology's taken us forward, all sorts of stuff, but our wiring and our brain and our fear system, it hasn't kept pace.
2: Yeah, we've still got basically the same brains and nervous systems that we had 250,000 years ago, and uh, they're kind of trying to adapt to a modern world. So unfortunately one of the things that goes on is it's the same way that we reacted to a saber-toothed tiger or a, a, you know, a cave bear 250,000 years ago. We now react that way to our own feelings. So, you know, a feeling of anxiety shows up and we start treating that as a threat. Um, And that the system didn't evolve to do that. That's kind of unfortunate byproduct uh, of, uh, of evolution.
0: Yeah. And, Subtle threats, as well, whether it be you know, an email popping up, a deadline, these kind of things that are not life threatening, yet our brain may interpret them to be somewhere along the spectrum towards being that.
2: Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's, um, uh, I mean, uh, if you take something like social anxiety, you, you know, about it's, it's the most common psychological disorder there is, um, uh, about. of the population will suffer from significant social anxiety to such an extent that it interferes with their life. uh, and they either avoid socializing or have to rely heavily on drugs and alcohol to socialize. Now, if, if you think about that in in uh, kind of cave person, stone age terms, how important is it for you to belong to the group? You know, if the group kick you out, if the tribe kick you out, the, the clan boot you out, you're not going to survive for very long by yourself. Uh, you know, the wolves will eat you for lunch. If you survive lunch, the bears will have you for dinner. And so your mind, your brain, your nervous system compares you to every other member of the group. Am I fitting in? Am I doing well enough? Am I contributing? Am I following the rules? Am I doing anything that might get me rejected? Does Does this sound a bit like your mind? You know oh totally yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and so you know that gives rise you know what we experience in the modern world is that we're surrounded you know but back then it was just a small group but now we're, we're surrounded by uh, people on on television on the social media uh, you know uh, newspapers magazines if they still exist uh, you know there's people everywhere we can compare ourselves to and very often they're portraying themselves as, as smarter, richer, more attractive, better than us. So we've got this constant comparison going on to this huge group that we belong to. And so it's quite natural that uh, really from a very young age, for most of us, we start to develop doubt about ourselves. You know, I'm not good enough. I don't measure up. I don't fit in. There's something wrong with me. I'm too fat. I'm too stupid. I'm not as good as this person or that person. And so kind of low self-confidence, self-doubt, self-judgment, social anxiety, all of these things are, are really normal and widespread. And it's kind of very unusual if you don't experience some of this. Which leads on to the fact that it's
0: vital, then, really, to learn to relate to these thoughts and feelings differently, to understand where they're coming from, and how to, for want of a better word, manage them better.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Because there's no way that you're going to get rid of them. There's no way you're going to overturn, you know, two hundred and fifty thousands of years of evolution. You know, I mean, positive thinking is very popular as a construct, but. learning to think positively is not going to stop all these negative thoughts and feelings showing up. Just like, uh, you know, if you learn to speak Spanish, you won't forget English. You've got English and Spanish. So you can, you know, certainly learn to think more positively, but that's not going to stop all of this kind of self-doubt, self-judgment, you know, worries, anxieties popping up in your head and uh, feelings of anxiety showing up in your body, uh, particularly in challenging difficult situations. I mean, particularly you're an elite athlete and you've got the eyes of the world on you. You know, it's completely unrealistic to expect to go into those situations, just feeling totally positive with no kind of anxiety or doubt. So just to emphasize
0: the point, really, feelings of anxiety, feelings of doubt, feelings of perhaps I'm not good enough, all of these things, they are not individual or personal to us. These are universal afflictions, really.
2: Yeah, absolutely. You know, if we could... I think part of the problem is we see them as afflictions and certainly part of the, the thing that ACT uh, tries to do is help you see, well, actually, they don't have to be afflictions. This is just part of life. It's, uh, it, you know, and, and these things serve a purpose because, you know, we, we, we've we been focusing on the dark side, but the, the bright side of these things is that they help us prepare, they help keep us safe, uh, you know, kind of, they uh, they actually, you know, you can channel Uh, and, and, and kind of top performers do this. You can actually channel that anxiety constructively and usefully into your performance, but you can't do that while you're busy fighting it, suppressing it, trying to get rid of it. You have to turn towards it and embrace it and make use of it.
0: Do you think there's a subtle message or a subtle belief, widespread belief, that then we should always or tend to feel peaceful and happy Therefore, when these feelings of anxiety arise, as they inevitably do in everyone, some people will leap to the conclusion that there is something wrong with me and perhaps may seek help that perhaps they don't need.
2: I, I, yeah, it's incredibly common. I mean, uh, you know, we just see the amount of prescriptions going through the roof in, in every Western country. Uh, you know, there's no doubt about it that kind of antidepressants and anti-anxiety medications are massively overprescribed. That, that, that doesn't mean that there's no role for them at all. But there's a huge amount of overprescribing. People are just so quick to, to latch on to, oh, there's something wrong with me for feeling this way and thinking this way. How do I make it go away? And of uh, course, um, uh, you know, G- GPs uh, are under the pump and it's very hard for them to find time to do psychological counselling if they're even trained in it. So, you know, writing a prescription is often the kind of the shortcut uh, Band-Aid approach. OK, so this
0: is kind of the first important point then, just to summarise what we've spoken about already, that these Thoughts and feelings that are easy to class as bad as negative. First of all, they are as common as, as uh, common innate. Book.
1: Common, common as
0: look. Common <laughs> there, there, there we go. Summed yeah. it up beautifully. Thanks very yeah. much, Russ. They're innate to us. And therefore, the fact just the fact that you have uncomfortable thoughts and feelings does not mean that there's anything wrong with you. So, because-
2: you know, more than that, it means that you're a normal. It means that you're a normal human being, you know. It's, uh, it, exactly, would be, yeah. it would be kind of weird if you weren't having that stuff, you know. Now,
0: with that left slightly to the side just for a second, and before we get into ACT and some of the tools and techniques and strategies, if you like, Something that I've read of yours that i really found fascinating is the definitions of confidence and happiness and how they've evolved. Could you just explain how they have changed?
2: Yeah, well, confidence, you know, comes from the Latin com fides, which uh, means with faith or with trust. So the original meaning of confidence, it was an act of faith, an act of trust to kind of trusting in yourself or having faith in yourself to do what's important. Even if you're terrified, even if you're full of self-doubt, that was the original meaning. And then over the last hundred years, that's come to be replaced by a very different meaning, which is a kind of uh, rather than treating it as an act of faith, it's become a a feeling of assurance, a feeling of certainty, uh, an absence of fear and anxiety and doubt. And that's very problematic because it's, you know, it's completely unrealistic to have that feeling in many, many, many challenging situations. Um, In you're stepping out of your comfort zone, uh, dealing with something really difficult, then, uh, you know, some degree of of doubt and anxiety is completely uh, expected and normal. And one of the problems here is that we compare our insides to other people's outsides. So uh, when I'm uh, running workshops with uh, with sports psychologists and and, uh, and uh, uh, kind of coaches, um, they tell me that this is one of the the things they encounter a lot with their athlete clients that uh, you know uh, this this team sees the other team on the pitch and goes, well, they don't look anxious. They don't look like they're doubting. Yeah, because on the outside, your body posture, your face, uh, it doesn't show. But you can't see what's going on inside their minds and inside their bodies. Um, and so, it, like in the confidence gap, uh, I kind of mentioned about uh, Lance Armstrong. Now, unfortunately, mm-hmm. I, uh, yeah, you know what I'm going to say. Uh, yeah, yeah, a yeah, kind yeah. Of, uh, <laughs> yeah. Red uh, called that one wrong, right? <laughs> <laughs> You know, unfortunately, uh, when I read the book, it was before all the Lance Armstrong scandals. But nonetheless, the particular example I'm going to give is appropriate in that everybody uh, said about Lance Armstrong, he's fearless. He has no fear. You know, his coaches, his other te- you know, uh, everyone who knew him, he's fearless. But th- that's not what Lance Armstrong said. He actually said, I am terrified of failure. Now, he had an enormous fear of failure and uh, went to extremes uh, to, yeah, yeah. to avoid it, obviously. But, you know, it's just a good example of uh, of how um, we assume from other people's outsides that we know what's going on on their insides. Yeah. We
0: can actually come back, I suppose, to Lance in a way in terms of the difference between living a goals-focused life as opposed to a values-focused life or getting that balance right, perhaps. It was a little out of kilter you could suggest there. <laughs> uh, another person uh, another person. I think you mentioned actually in, in The Confidence Gap was uh, Nelson Mandela. And he would, when he was on Robben Island, he would feel terrified inside, but he wanted to project that feeling of confidence outwards because he knew that it would give his fellow inmates a sense of assurance. And then that leads to just projection generally, how it's so easy for all of us to feel a certain way inside, let's say anxious and project it out and imagine that everyone is thinking the same about us as the thoughts that we are experiencing in that moment.
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, probably if people listen to me on this podcast, I, I probably sound you know quite calm and relaxed. But I've actually got sweaty hands right now. You know, uh, it's like uh, I, I do loads and loads of public speaking and workshops and interviews and podcasts and all that kind of stuff. But it, the the anxiety of it never goes. There's a a performance, uh, you know, to a certain degree. You're expecting reasonably intelligent <laughs> answers to your questions. There, there is some anxiety here, and people aren't necessarily going to pick that up.
0: Yeah, absolutely. How do you imagine I feel? And um, <laughs> and then, but then the beauty of that as well, which is something we'll perhaps come back to, is that actually those sweaty palms, that feeling of anxiety, the fear—if we just class it as that—not only is it not necessarily a bad thing; actually, it can be fuel for a good performance.
2: Yes, it can, you know. And there's some interesting uh, research that if uh, if you're actually if your anxiety levels are too low when you're in a a kind of challenging uh, situation, then your your performance actually goes down. Uh, Psychologists call this relaxed incompetence. So in fact, it's not the level of anxiety that determines how well you perform, but how much you're struggling with your anxiety. So if I can introduce a, a kind of jargonistic term of experiential avoidance, that's uh, that means the ongoing attempt to avoid and get rid of unwanted inner experiences, thoughts, feelings, emotions that you don't like, you don't want. And What we know is the higher your level of experiential avoidance, in other words, the more determined you are to avoid uncomfortable, unpleasant, unwanted thoughts and feelings, uh, the more, you know, there's a direct correlation between that and impairment of your performance the greater your experiential avoidance the worse your performance so it's not the amount of anxiety you have in a in a high performance situation it's how much you're struggling with it and trying to avoid or get rid of it that uh, impacts negatively on your performance
1: when you're ready to pop the question the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring at bluenile.com you can design a one of a kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online Luxury quality within reach. Go to
0: quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Yes, and I learned this the hard way when I was an insomniac in my 20s, but there's another episode that you can listen about that and actually act. I had one session and it completely transformed my relationship to the fear I had when I was going to sleep and really did stop virtually my insomnia in its tracks after five six years of being tortured by it now before we move on to some of the techniques in that just quickly as well you mentioned confidence can you just give me a quick how the definition of happiness has changed as well
2: yeah well you know for a long time happiness was defined in terms of doing good it was about doing good things in the world Um, and then again in the last 100 years it's come to mean feeling good Um, And so it's no longer uh, about doing things that are meaningful, important. It's about how you feel inside. Uh, And that's unfortunate, again, because uh, we've got a lot of control, so much more control over what we do than we have over what we feel. So, you know, one of the things that ACT does is it gets people to take control of their actions, uh, living their values, doing things that are meaningful and purposeful and engaging in what they're doing. Rather than trying to control their feelings, especially uh, you know trying to get rid of those negative ones. So happiness
0: is used to be about doing good in the world. So that is to a degree living your values, and then confidence is trusting that you're going to do what needs doing. For example, doing good in the world, even when you don't feel like doing it.
2: Yeah, exactly. So you know, I, I guess in act we kind of we go back to the old definitions of both those worlds. The emphasis is. Focus on on doing what's important, living your values, being the sort of person you want to be, engaging in what you're doing, and allowing your thoughts and feelings to be as they are. I we often talk about you know just kind of letting them come and stay and go in their own good time as they choose, letting them flow through you while you focus on what you're doing. And it's paradoxical stuff because as you do that. Um, What we know is that confidence levels go up, happiness levels go up, health and well-being go up, but not through trying to control your feelings, actually through letting go of trying to control your feelings.
0: A common impulse then when uncomfortable thoughts or feelings come up is to either bat them away, to ignore them or try and suppress them. And you've talked a lot about some of the techniques that are quite popular these days. So let's think about positive self-talk positive thinking sorry affirmations so some of these perhaps more common more popular tools and techniques that people are assured will make a real difference them stand in front of the mirror and tell yourself you're lovable for 10 minutes every morning and then in time you will feel that way so can you just uh can you just pull this apart for me
2: (laughs) Yeah, well, you know, the kind of positive affirmations, positive self-talk appeal to people because they make, uh, you know, they appeal to common sense. It's like if, if the common sense problem is I've got all this negative self-talk going on, the common sense solution is talk positively to myself. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, the brain works by addition, not by subtraction. So, you know, again, if I go back to the example of learning Spanish, you've got Spanish on top of English. You haven't got Spanish instead of English. So you can add all these positive thoughts in, but it doesn't stop the negative thoughts from popping up. Now, the world, you know, there's so many uh, books and self-help programs and courses based on positive affirmations. But when you actually look at the scientific research, um, this stuff just doesn't hold water. Like there was a a good study done. I think it was two thousand um, and nine. Uh, and you know, if if your listeners are interested, they can Google it. It's uh, on Scholar Google. It's called um, "Positive Self Statements: Power for Some, Peril for Others." And what they did was they got people with uh, low self esteem and people with high self esteem and they had them practice positive self statements you know things like I am lovable, I am worthwhile I accept myself and so forth. But what they found was that people who already had uh high self esteem got a tiny bit of benefit from saying this stuff to themselves. they did kind of feel a little bit happier, but people who had low self esteem that said this stuff to themselves got worse so The people that didn't need it got a little bit of benefit, but the people this was recommended for actually got worse. What they would find is they would say, you know, I am lovable, and then their mind would instantly reply, "Well, no, you're not. What about your, you know, your thighs? What about your pot belly? You know, uh, you know, I'm a good friend. No, you're not. What about the time you did this? What about the time you did that? And, and, and so, basically, the, the positive self-talk would actually trigger deeply entrenched negative self-talk that really made them worse than they were before. And you mentioned the word self-esteem,
0: and this is an incredibly popular idea, should we say? And I really try and avoid it, and I think I've learned over time personally that it's not something that I particularly hold in high regard and you and I are cut from the same cloth when it comes to that, aren't we
2: Yes very much I mean again, yeah, enormous popularity in the Western world in particular on the you know we're all told uh you know as kids about the importance of high self esteem um, but in you know people forget. Well, firstly, high self-esteem has a dark side, and the dark side of that is narcissism and arrogance and egotism and Donald Trump syndrome. But the other thing is the kind of research on high self-esteem, people basically got it all wrong. What happened was back in the 1960s, psychologists found that students, school students that were doing better at school had high self-esteem and they made the wrong deduction that their high self-esteem led to them doing well at school. Whereas in fact, what we know is it's the other way around. And so now you've got all of these people putting the cart before the horse, let's build the self-esteem of our school students and they'll do better. And the problem is if you're building high self-esteem from students that uh, you know are not doing anything particularly special or wonderful, what you're creating is little narcissists and egotists. Uh, what, uh, what we want to do in the app model is, is get rid of this whole notion of how self is, You know, high self-esteem can be a problem, low self-esteem can be a problem. Let's forget judging ourselves as people and let's just kind of move into self-acceptance and self-compassion. Can I accept myself as who I am? Can I be compassionate to myself when I'm struggling? And instead of trying to kind of judge myself as a human being, why don't I just start living my life, living my values, getting on with my life doing the things that are meaningful to me. Yeah, yeah. I think
0: self-esteem is is interesting because to esteem something, you have to rate it, and you can only rate it in comparison to something else. And I think that we all know someone who at least gives the impression of thinking highly of themselves despite what you might consider to be the evidence and vice versa. And really it's, it's just a story that we tell ourselves about ourselves That whole story that we tell ourselves about
2: ourselves,
0: that's what self-esteem
2: is, isn't it? Yeah, that's the myth. The the, the idea is that I have to have a positive story in my head about who I am uh, before I can get out there and do the things that are important. Uh, And in the ACT approach, we turn that on its head. Let's go out there and do the things that are important. And, And, you know, that story in your head it will change like the wind if you don't get caught up in it. You know, I find there are are some days my mind says to me, God, I'm a great dad. I'm doing a really, really good job. So much better than my dad was. But, you know, the next day my mind says, I'm screwing up my kid here. Oh, my God, look at, you know, all the mistakes I'm making. He's going to be in therapy telling them what a shit dad I am, you know. So, uh, you know, those, uh, I, I quite often say to people, you know, suppose at your own funeral, um, you could somehow magically be present at your own funeral. You're an angel or you're a ghost or you're looking on from heaven or something like that. So you're there at your funeral and you can read the minds of everybody at your funeral. Now, would you want them to be thinking something like this? You know, uh, he or she or, or they were uh, always there for me. They loved me. They cared about me. They uh, They were respectful and kind and I knew I could rely on them. You know, or would you want them to be thinking something like they had a really high opinion of themselves <laughs> you know at the end of the day you know oh, that's so well put I love that yeah, that's- yeah it's uh exactly so you know uh if i mean. I I just uh, think that self-acceptance is a much more useful concept to us because we've all got flaws and weaknesses and good points and bad points. So can we have a realistic appraisal of ourselves and accept ourselves warts and all? And and self-compassion, which means kind of acknowledging our pain and our suffering and being there for ourselves in a kind, supportive way. Those are much more useful because we are going to screw up and do things wrong and go off track and lose touch with our values and act in self-defeating ways over and over yeah. again. Yeah, couldn't agree more.
0: Self-acceptance is the most, I think, valuable way to approach this. And, you know, for a long time, I was on a quest to fix myself because I had this idea that to some degree I was broken, born of early experience, and there were certain aspects of myself that I didn't like. And and actually, if we go back to what you talk about, you know, if you learn Spanish, It doesn't mean that the English has gone underneath it. So things that we experience when we're young and we interpret them in a certain way when we're not particularly sophisticated, we probably personalize things. So these these pathways get laid down, the insecurities, neuroses, and you're not going to be able to get rid of them. And I think it's like you say, having acceptance, perhaps understanding them in the first place, then accepting them and then having compassion for them. And, you know, if you can do that, then actually, funnily enough, it tends to lead more to a more sustainable feeling of confidence and acceptance and well-being in the world than trying to fix yourself or think positively about yourself or anything like that.
2: Yeah, absolutely. You know, that's, that's well said. I mean, it's so paradoxical. You know, there's like 3,000 published studies now on ACT for everything, you know, from depression, anxiety, addiction to chronic pain syndrome, OCD, trauma, and so forth. And we see the same things over and over again, actually. uh, People's uh, painful feelings reduce, anxiety symptoms go down, people's health and happiness go up, they do feel better. But none of that happens from doing the common sense stuff. None of that happens from trying to avoid or get rid of unwanted feelings or trying to create pleasant, positive feelings. It's all about stepping out of the battle with that stuff and and shifting your energy into, you know, acting in line with your values and focusing on what you're doing and engaging in the world and just allowing your feelings to be as they are. You know, we often use the analogy of the weather, you know, if you if you fight or struggle with the weather, what do you get? You know, but what you can do is adapt to the weather. You can, uh, you know, take out an umbrella when it's raining, and especially <laughs> if you live in England. Uh, and, all right, uh, Ross, all right, all right, all right. <laughs> there's, a, there's a reason why I emigrated. So. <laughs> uh, you know, but if you start struggling or fighting with the rain, what do you get, you know? Uh,
1: yeah.
0: yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: And, and, and the rain
0: in and of itself is neutral.
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly.
0: Just like our thinking, you know, and you talk about this. It's we're very quick to label thinking or feelings or thoughts or feelings as good or bad, but actually, in act, it's really more about okay, not trying to categorize them in that way, but just is this thought, for example, I'm having effective.
2: Yeah, effective or helpful, you know, basically, when this thought shows up, you know, if if I act on this thought, is it going to help me to do what I want to do, be the person I want to be do the things that matter, you know, if it does, then kind of use it, let it guide you. But if it doesn't, then you just, oh, okay, there's a thought, there's my mind. You know, uh, in Act, we're very big on getting people to kind of name the story. So, you know, if you've got a story coming up, I can't cope, I'm too stupid, I haven't got what it takes, I'm weak, whatever, then, okay, there's the stupid story, there's the weak story, or uh, any kind of way of of non judgmentally naming that cognitive process is useful. Actually, ah, you know, there's radio doom and gloom playing in my head you know, or there's my inner critic beating up on me or, you know, quite often we encourage people to use a little technique called thanking your mind. So whatever your mind says, no matter how mean or nasty it is, just with a sense of humor, a sense of playfulness, you just say, "Ah, oh, thanks mind. Thanks for sharing. You know, you're an idiot. You're a loser. You're pathetic. Oh, thanks mind. Well, you can use that thanks mind technique, but you're still a loser. Ah, oh, thanks mind. You know, so you're not agreeing with it, but you're not fighting with it. You're going, okay, that 's what you 're giving me in this moment uh, and mm. uh, and then focus your attention on on what 's important right now,
0: so it 's acknowledging the thoughts. And relating to it differently. And before we get into diffusion techniques, which is an area I particularly love, just quickly on the evidence around trying to suppress thoughts or resist emotions and actually how they tend to, when we do that, rebound stronger. It's like pushing a ball underwater, isn't it? And then holding it down, but it's got all that energy and it's just going to fly back up at some point.
2: Yeah, there's so much research on that. You know, emotional suppression uh, leads to rebound effects where the very emotions you're trying to get rid of come back with greater and greater frequency and intensity. Same with uh, cognitive suppression, trying to get rid of unwanted thoughts. You know, in in the old days, uh, some popular psychological approaches encouraged, you know, if an unwanted thought shows up, you snap an elastic band or you silently say stop to yourself. Uh, But, uh, you know, the research is now crystal clear Clear that those kind of techniques actually just, they'll make the short, the thoughts go away for a little while, but they'll come back with greater and greater frequency and intensity. And, you know, in fact, that's, you know, a good example of this would be obsessive compulsive disorder. So someone's got some unpleasant feelings of anxiety and thoughts that they're going to get sick and ill. So maybe they wash their hands 10 times and that kind of reassures them and gets rid of those thoughts and feelings for a short space of time. But soon those very same thoughts and feelings are coming back with greater and greater frequency and intensity. So then they have to start washing their hands 15 times to get the same effect or 20 times to get the same effect or every half an hour to get the same effect in a vicious cycle. Let's get into
0: then a bit of diffusion techniques because like I said, this is something that is incredibly powerful. Um, And if I just relate back to my issues that I used to have with sleep, so I used to go to bed and my fear mechanism basically started to see bed as a threat. So I would go towards bed, my heart would be beating, my churning stomach, thoughts of I'm not going to sleep, tomorrow I'm going to be a complete mess, all this kind of stuff. And obviously, I had a list of things that I would do, You know, a list of pre-bed rituals, if you like. But when I was in bed, the only options I thought I had available to me were ignoring the thoughts which is essentially repressing the thoughts or to get into a dialogue with them and i'd have this kind of conversation in my head where it became you're not going to sleep tonight i hate that you don't know that i'm not going to sleep tonight fearing in the back of my mind that this is absolutely true and i'd go round and round and then i was taught this diffusion technique of acknowledging the thoughts so you're aware of the thought and then adding a little prefix and the best one for me has been I am having the thought that I'm not going to sleep tonight. I am having the thought that I'm not going to be able to perform well tomorrow. And actually, I've adapted it slightly to now. I am aware of the thought that I'm not going to sleep tonight or whatever it may be. And you can use this in any situation. This particular diffusion technique, it's a form of mindfulness as well
2: yeah yeah it's i'm that's probably my favorite diffusion technique and i i like it because uh, it's it's just so simple you know a a thought shows up i'm a loser and you know our instinct is to kind of just respond to that as you say i either take it as true or treat it as a threat that i need to get rid of but if you add a little prefix you know I am noticing the thought that I'm a loser or here's my mind telling me I'm a loser or here's the loser story or aha, the loser thought. I know this one, you know, any of those kind of things. It's just that kind of it helps you to step back and see this is a thought, this is a bunch of words popping up in my head. And we don't need to debate whether it's true or false or positive or negative. It's just acknowledging this is a thought. Once, once I know that this is a bunch of words popping up, then I have a choice about what I do. It, you know, is this something that it's going to be useful for me to let guide my actions? Or is this something just to kind of let come and stay and go in its own good time while I focus on something more important? And thoughts are
0: nothing more than words or images passing through our mind.
2: Yeah, that's basically uh, a good a good layman's definition. They're, they're combinations of pictures and words that convey information. Uh, and uh, so fusion is the technical term in that. So if you, if you think of two sheets of metal fused together, they're inseparable. They're kind of stuck. Uh, and so fusion with our thoughts means that uh, we're kind of stuck stuck in our thoughts. They've got, uh, in a state of fusion, our thoughts seem like threats we need to get rid of, or they seem like commands and rules that we have to obey, uh, or they seem like something very, very important that we have to give all our attention to, or they seem like um, really good advice that we should follow, or they just seem like the absolute truth but in it, when we learn how to diffuse from our thoughts to step back our thoughts may or may not be true they're certainly not threats that i have to fight with they're certainly not rules that i have to obey they may or may not be uh you know good advice to follow But once I can see their thoughts, it makes it easier for me to make that judgment call. And as you say, it's mindfulness, but it's a very, a lot of mindfulness is very heavily based around meditation. And unfortunately, a lot of people find meditation either very hard or very boring um, or both. Uh, And so one of the things I like about it is it's got lots of little mindfulness techniques that are very easy to 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 use you know uh, this particular one I usually call it noticing and naming you notice the thought and then you name it uh, here it is I'm having it I'm noticing it I'm aware of there it is again
0: yeah yeah and you, you can just use these diffusion techniques all the time and so for example if I'm playing tennis like I said oh I'm having the thought that I'm gonna hit a double fault boom I drop out of the thought if I'm gonna similar to you give a talk oh I'm having the thought that this isn't going to go well. Hello, thoughts that this isn't going to go well. Come on in, make yourself at home. And it completely transforms your relationship to it. And you mentioned fusion and a metaphor that I quite like. And I've got it in my head now because I'm looking at my TV screen, which is right in front of me, a big TV screen. It's not that big. I don't want to sound grand, (laughs) but um, (laughs) a, a TV screen, right? And it's black at the moment. So there's nothing on the TV screen. But obviously when I turn the television on, Uh, various scenes will appear on that. Some of them might be traumatic. Some of them might be, let's say, I watch a horror movie. And it's like the screen itself getting lost in the content of the movie and forgetting that the screen is not the movie.
2: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's a good analogy. Or or a similar analogy would be like, uh, you know, Fusion is like watching that horror film. All by yourself in a dark room, uh, in in a in a dark, deserted house, in the middle of the countryside, in the middle of a thunderstorm, you know, in pitch blackness, right? Uh, whereas diffusion is like, uh, you know, it's uh, it's it's seeing that same horror movie on the television screen. But it's just a small screen in the corner of the room, it's broad daylight, the windows are open, you're hanging around with your mates, doing something like fun, like listening to your podcast, for example. And, you know, it's the same movie playing, but it's a very different impact that it's having on you. And in terms of
0: being able to use these diffusion techniques, so let's again say I'm I'm aware of the thought that or I'm having the thought that or I'm aware of the feeling You can do this all day long. And as well, there's extra value in doing it, not just with so-called quote-unquote bad feelings, but just any feeling, including good feelings or thoughts. You can go, I am aware of the thing. And you're just permanently then training yourself to not get lost in thoughts and feelings, essentially.
2: Yeah, absolutely. You know, when anxiety shows up, again, uh, if we're not consciously aware of it, uh, it it has a huge impact over us. It kind of jerks us around a bit like a puppet on a string. But if we start to become aware of it uh, through these kinds of methods, uh, I'm noticing anxiety or here's anxiety showing up or here's tightness in my chest, we start activating different parts of the brain. We start uh, having a different response to this anxiety that actually reduces its impact and influence over us. So just stopping to notice and name it reduces the influence that it has over our actions. And then, of course, we can go further with some of the other act techniques like breathing into it and opening up and making room for it, uh, uh, which, which further reduces its impact. So it's not getting rid of it but massively reducing its impact yeah let's get on to
0: values okay goals v. values and we mentioned lance armstrong earlier in sport for example there's this there's narrative around winning is all that counts it's about the trophies and therefore the goal is to win and we live in a society do we not that is tends to be very goal focused whether that be i want to earn a certain amount of money i want to get this type of relationship i want to win this tournament and then i want to win this tournament more times than anyone's ever won it but the problem with being really goal focused first of all there's no guarantee it can happen and second of all as we see with lance it can lead to behaviors that come at the cost of our integrity because it's the goal that matters not how we get there that counts
2: yeah, absolutely. You know, and any cheating that goes on is massively reinforced by all the other people that play a role in it. Uh, and uh, we see it across all sports, and we see it uh, in all types of institutions and organizations, uh, and we read it in the newspapers. I mean, people cut corners, cheat, they they lose their integrity, they do dishonest things over and over and over again in all walks of life because they're so focused on the goal. I want that, I want that, and I don't care what I have to do to, to achieve it. So, A better way of living
0: is to have more emphasis on values which is something that i've touched on a lot and actually i got a beautiful email yesterday from a listener who said i think he was training to be a lawyer or something like that and you know and he felt it really was going to define him and then because the topic of values has come up so often he's now like he's not even that bothered about people knowing when he does qualify he's much more interested in living his values and that's how he's going to decide whether or not he is you know achieving his potential for one of another words so yeah just can you just talk about the importance of values as you see them
2: yeah so values are basically your heart's deepest desires for how you want to behave as a human being you know how you want to treat yourself how you want to treat others how you want to treat the world around you Um, and they are very empowering because we can act on them in any moment, right here, right now, and tomorrow and the day after. So whereas goals may be way off in the future, uh, goals, uh, we can live our values right now. So for example, suppose uh, you're a you know, you want to become a brain surgeon and you're still a school student, you know, that, you know at least five years at university, at med school, another five years to specialize. It may take you 10 years uh, if you actually pass all the exams. But what are the values that are underlying that? If the values are around helping and caring and looking after others and supporting others, you can start living those values right now as a school student in in little ways. You know, how can you be helpful and supportive and caring for the people in your life at school and at home? So. One thing is it kind of helps us find some satisfaction when we're facing goals that are a long way off or seemingly impossible because we can live these values on an ongoing basis. But The other thing is they can kind of give us the motivation to sustain us, uh, to do all that hard work towards achieving those distant or or difficult goals. And they can give confidence as well, because
0: I was thinking in terms of, say, playing a a tennis match, the goal could be to win. But the values you might want to exhibit when playing could be things like to try and play fearlessly, to try and play effortfully, to try and play fairly. And therefore, if you're focused on those stuff, the outcome isn't quite as important. If that is your priority, then first of all, you're more likely to be relaxed, actually. You're more likely to win. And then even if you don't, it doesn't matter because you can go, well, look, I did my best in the way that I wanted to define how I wanted to perform.
2: Yeah, absolutely. You know, you played well. I mean, I guess the that kind of ancient English institution of being a good sport, old chap, you know, <laughs> I mean, that's really what it's talking about, isn't it? Uh, let's be a sportsman here. Let's be fair and open and honest and uh, play the game well to the best of your ability. You know, don't be a bad sport. Yeah. And can you just quickly talk, because I know you've done
0: some amazing research for the World Health Organization, around refugees that really illustrated the power of living according to your values or trying to live according to your values so could you just talk a little bit about this please
2: yeah well that was amazing so i i you know i i didn't do the research but i wrote the protocol that they used um for so There's all these refugee camps around the world, and these are, uh, you know, often they've got 200,000, 300,000, 400,000 refugees living in tents with uh, the most, uh, you know, basic facilities. Uh, And often, uh, you know, lots of depression and trauma related to the horrors of war or whatever has led to them becoming refugees. And they're left to their own devices. And the World Health Organization wanted to see if they could provide some psychological support to people in those awful situations. So I was lucky that they uh, invited me to write this 10-hour protocol, which they run in groups in the refugee camps. It's just 10 hours of audio recordings based on the ACT approach. Um, And they do it over five two-hour sessions where a kind of group of refugees get together and they listen to the audios for two hours and practice the various exercises. Some of the ones we've been talking about today, you know, how do you live your values in the refugee camp? Uh, how do you uh, deal with all the difficult thoughts and feelings that show up in the refugee camp? Um, and the results were pretty amazing that even in those awful situations uh, with, with all of the, the those uh, ongoing difficulties, that uh, just 10 hours of ACT was enough to have significant reductions in depression and post-traumatic stress disorder. And it wasn't like these people suddenly felt happy, but they did feel empowered. You know, uh, I share a tent with a bunch of other people and I've got choices about how I treat the other people in my tent. I can be cold or hostile or aggressive, or I can be friendly and kind and supportive. And when I leave my tent, there's people in the tent opposite me. And again, I can be hostile or I can be friendly. I can join in the prayer and the singing and the various other activities in the refugee camp, or I can isolate myself. And those little choices that you make all day long alter your experience within the refugee camp.
0: I mean that's amazing that really does speak to the to the power of values so if if we can go about our life trying to live according to the values that we hold dear then literally our quality of life can improve just very quickly Russ a lot of people don't know what their values are how would you encourage someone to get in touch with that
2: well in the in the in the World Health Organization protocol, we said, look at someone in the refugee camp who you admire or you look up to and notice how are they treating others in the refugee camp? What are the qualities that they're showing as they treat other people? You know, uh, are they being uh, kind, courageous, helpful, supportive, interested? You know, loving, compassionate, you know, are those the qualities that you admire in them? And so, uh, you know, that's often a very good starting point. Look for qualities you admire in other people, in the way they behave and in the way they treat others. Um, And uh, the very fact that you admire those qualities usually points to the fact that they are your values. Your values are basically desired qualities, the qualities that you desire to bring to your own actions.
0: Is it important or intrinsic to values then is how we relate to others?
2: Well, the values are a two-way street. So like if my value is being loving, then it's being loving to myself and loving to others. Uh, So, uh, you know, another good way to to start thinking about your values is just think about uh, when you were treating yourself really well. What was that like? Uh, were, were, you know, uh, or compare that to a time when you were treating yourself really badly. What was the difference? Probably when you were treating yourself well, you were being kind and supportive and encouraging. Uh, you know, whereas probably when you were treating yourself badly, you were being harsh, critical, judgmental.
0: Yeah, I like that. So it's just how we want to be in the world, show up in the world, treat others, and treat ourselves is kind of a summary then of, of values. Yeah,
2: absolutely. Yeah,
0: great stuff. Right, last couple of things, Russ. Could you just talk to me very quickly about the golden rule, as it were, of confidence?
2: Yeah, the actions of confidence come first, the the feelings of confidence come later. If you're lucky. You know, (laughs) there's no guarantee that the feelings of confidence will come, Uh, but the actions of confidence always have to come first. You know, when you're learning something new, where you're stepping out of your comfort zone, developing a new skill, moving into challenging situations, you will initially guarantee to feel anxious or have doubt. Uh, And only when you've done that skill or been in that situation or practiced that stuff over and over and over and over again until you've reached a point of competence. Only then do you have a chance of having some feelings of confidence. Until you've actually done it enough to reach that point where you're competent, you will have doubts and anxiety. If you don't, that's not helpful. You know, that's called overconfidence or misplaced confidence or, uh, or naive optimism. So the um, yeah, actions of confidence come first, feelings of confidence come later. It may be that after you've done it 10,000 times that you feel totally confident and there's no anxiety at all. Maybe or maybe not.
1: You know? yeah.
2: I mean, if we just come back to me in this podcast, I, I, I would say I... You know, I, I am very confident about public speaking. And what I've noticed throughout this podcast is there's times my hands been sweaty and I've been aware of anxiety and other times where I've felt quite relaxed and at ease and the, the hands stop sweating, you know, and it just it depends on, you know, how challenging the question is for me, uh, you know, if it's something I've said a million times or if it's something I have to think about, uh, you know, it, there's so many yeah, factors course. involved.
0: Yeah. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah, they come and go.
0: So, Russ, have you got any final thoughts about... About confidence, about act, about all this stuff that we've been chatting about. The stage is yours. Sweaty palms and all.
2: <laughs> oh my god, the pressure is on. Uh <laughs> Um, i've just gone completely blank uh, so i'm just i'm practicing self-acceptance and self-compassion right now well that's beautiful right there there we go there we go there we go i thought that was a lovely way to finish self-acceptance and self-compassion right Russ,
0: it's been a real pleasure talking to you i think the fact that you've written this book and alistair cook went out and scored 766 runs to defeat australia on their own own turf says it all as does the uh, various research you've cited, not least the power of act in refugee camps, which is just just amazing. So I'm a huge fan of your work. I always uh, enjoy talking to you as well. So thank you very much indeed for coming on Don't Tell Me The Score. It really has
2: been a totally expected pleasure. Oh, thank you so much and thanks for having such an unsporty pro person on a, <laughs> such a sporty programme okay. it's, it's, it only pretends to be sporty this is YouTube it? but that's between <laughs> us anyway
0: yeah cheers Russ thanks okay. very much
2: okay cheers thanks
0: thanks for listening to this episode of Don't Tell Me The Score with Dr Russ Harris like I said I am a huge fan of his work and act more broadly. It really has helped me hugely and it actually has quite profound implications too. If you think this episode could help anyone you know, please do go ahead and share it. And if you could leave a kind rating and review, I'd be really grateful. When I switched platforms a few months back, all the 1000 plus ratings that don't tell me the score had went. So even if you have left the rating before, and could do so again, it really would make a huge difference. As ever, you can get in touch with me on social media. I'm at Simon Mundy. I've recently started a weekly newsletter featuring some of my favorite nuggets and life lessons. If you'd like to sign up, just drop me a message. All good stuff, I promise. My website is simonmundy.com where you can sign up too. Thanks to everyone who's been in touch recently. I'm very grateful and thank you for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed it and I also hope you'll join me again next time on Don't Tell Me The Score.